following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We continue and conclude this morning a three-week series that the assistant pastors have been doing, looking at the way in which our desires for earthly pleasures and goals and possessions can undermine the vibrancy of our life in Christ. This morning we're looking at Colossians chapter 3. If you would open your Bibles and read with me Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 11. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is God's word for God's people. Let's pray. God, as we look at this text of Scripture, this morning we know that you have revealed it to us. You have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed Christ and your salvation to us. We pray then that by your Spirit, you would use this to help us grow in the knowledge of our Savior. Convict us of sin that you might be glorified. We pray this in your name. Amen. This text starts with a small word, the word if. If is one of those little words. It's easy to overlook. It's easy to overlook its significance remember in middle school grammar when we had to diagram sentences, it was always one of those words I had no idea what to do with. I'd just skip it. But it's this small word, if, that's driving what Paul is communicating to us this morning. You know how the word if works. If sets out a condition, and if you fulfill the condition, then there's some promised reward that is received at the end. In fact, for most of us, our lives have been filled with ifs from as early as we can remember. If you eat your broccoli, then you can have ice cream. If you obey, then you will not be punished. If you do not shoot the neighbor's dog, then you may build a potato gun. Then, and the the ifs continue as we grow older. Um, If you work enough hours, then you will get overtime pay, etc. So we know what if means, but what ought to strike us when we come to the text this morning 
is that by the logic of our experience and the logic of religion, this if is backwards. See, when we think about religion and we think about our experience, the if sets out what we have to do in order to gain a certain reward. If you obey God, you will receive eternal happiness. If you do X and not Y, you will be okay with God. But this passage argues from the opposite direction. It starts with the reward. It starts with the status of who we are in Christ and then tells us how we ought to act and what we ought to love accordingly. If you have been raised with Christ, then set your minds on things that are above. See, Paul here is not giving us an argument whereby we have to do something in order to gain a certain reward. He's telling us who we are in Christ, and once we know who we are in Christ, that then dictates or drives what we love, and how we act. This morning, I want to look at these two pieces. First, who we are in Christ, and then how we ought to act in light of who we are. If you look at the first four verses of this passage in Colossians chapter 3, you'll note that Paul tells us four things that are true about us if we have thrown ourselves upon Christ as our Savior. In verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. In verse 3, you have died. In verse 4, Christ is your life. And then you will also appear with him in glory. There's Paul's summary of who we are in Christ. And right away, when we look at this summary, we're faced with an explanation of what has happened to us when we cling to the gospel. When we believe the gospel, this is what happens to us. Paul says we are raised with Christ. We know that apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are without hope and without God in the world, completely unable to come to God, completely unable to achieve any lasting hope or satisfaction on our own. For some, this feeling of futility, of death, is very evident as the hopelessness of life presses in upon them. For others, perhaps this feeling of death may not seem so strong as the allure of the world's offers of hope may still seem strong to them, but chasing after our satisfaction, which immediately ends, awaiting certain bodily death and then just judgment from God upon us for seeking our desires rather than the will of our Creator can be described in no other terms than death, bodily death, and spiritual death. But when we respond to God's call in the gospel to trust Christ for our salvation, then Paul says we have been raised from death to life in God, to life in Christ. So Paul says that we who have believed God in Christ Jesus have been raised with Christ. But verse 3 tells us that we've also died. How is it that we can both be raised to life and have died at the same time? Well, the consistent teaching of God's word is that when we come to Christ, our old self, that sinful, self-focused self that lived for our desires, our goals, our aims, dies when we come to Christ Jesus. We cannot believe in Jesus and entrust ourselves to Him as our only hope and Savior and continue to live in the same manner that we did before because our old self has died with Christ This is exactly what Paul is saying in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ 
who lives in me. We die to our old self with its desires and practices and are raised to new life in Christ Jesus, who is our life. This is nothing less than the good news of the gospel. But if we look at this passage, these verses are not only summarizing the gospel, they're also highlighting one of the most incredible truths of the gospel. See, if you look at this, we have died, we have been raised, we have life, we will appear in glory. What should immediately become clear is that this is exactly what happened to Christ himself. Christ died, Christ was raised, Christ had renewed life that God had raised him to, and Christ then appears in glory. See, our life, what we go through in the gospel, echoes what Christ did because the gospel is not just a thing that's given to us. The gospel is a united relationship with Christ. When we trust Christ, when we entrust ourselves to Jesus as our Savior, the Bible teaches us that we are joined to Christ. We are united to Christ in an inseparable union such that what happens to Christ happens to us. What is counted to be true of Christ is counted to be true of us. What Christ experienced, we experience. That is the good news of the gospel. Since, since Christ died, we too are counted as people who died. And our sins, our death, the suffering that we deserve is counted as paid in Christ. And not just that, but our old self has actually died in Christ. But not only have we died, we have also been raised to new life. But we continue here because this passage does not stop just with the promise of new life. This verse, verse 4, goes on to say that we will also appear with Christ in glory. See, brothers and sisters, we not only receive forgiveness of sins, we have the promise of new life, of eternal resurrection life. Together with Christ, we have the promise of being sons of God of eternal life lived in the love of the Father, lived in a glorified body together with Christ. You may recall when Paul talks about our hope in the gospel in Romans chapter 8, he says that when we have received the Spirit, we have received a spirit of adoption as sons, that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, who will be glorified together with Christ. Stop and think about that for a minute. The idea of living forever in heaven instead of hell is a wonderful thought, but it's a thought that I can largely get my mind around. The thought that I would be considered a co-heir with Christ, think about that, a co-heir, that means Christ is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, and yet in the gospel you are considered an equal heir with Christ. That is a blessing that is beyond anything that I can fathom the depths of. That when I come before the throne of God, he will look at me and say, I am your father, you are my son, you are an heir of eternal glory together with Christ Jesus. Do you see the glory of the blessing that is ours? This this salvation that we have is a promise that God is our father, that we share in all of the blessings of Christ Jesus. The author J.I. Packer summarized this this way. He said, what is a Christian? This question can be answered in any number of ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as a father, as co-son with Christ. 
If you want to judge how well a person understands his Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls our worship and our prayer and our whole outlook on life, then we have not understood Christianity very well at all. Do you see what glorious blessing is true of us? Do you see who we are in Christ? These verses tell us that we are inseparably united to Christ so that we are now sons and daughters of God, co-heirs of all the eternal blessings that have been promised to Christ who have died to our old self and now live in our Savior, with our Savior, with the same hope of glory with Christ Jesus. Hallelujah for what Christ has done in us. But this, if this is who we are in Christ, this leads directly to the second point in this text. See, Paul has told us that our old self, our old self-focused fallen identity has died along with Christ and that we have been raised along with Christ so that he now is our life. As Paul puts it in verses 1 and 2, this is who we are, then there is something that should guide how we act. If you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Set your minds on the things above, not on things of earth. Who we are, raised with Christ, ought to determine our focus in life. Now you'll see in verses 1 and 2 that Paul has given us two parallel phrases that define and describe what our focus in life ought to be. He tells us that we ought to seek the things that are above and also that we ought to set our minds on things above. Now when you think of the word seek, it's easy to to think of some game of hide and seek as if we're looking for something hidden. You might be thinking of a game like one that my kids enjoy where I hide candy and then they look for it and when they find it, they get the candy as if we're out seeking for something. That's not what Paul's telling us here. Paul is not telling us we got to hunt around and hope that we can find something of the heavenly realities. The word that is used here for seeking the things that are above is a word of orientation. It's a word of focus. It's a word of defining what it is that guides us and draws us and motivates us. Seeking implies a call then to orient our lives around something. It implies a call to orient our lives, to motivate our lives by heavenly realities, heavenly truths that are found where Christ is, seated in heaven. The same is true of the word used to set our minds on, to set our minds on the things above. To set our minds on is not just a a mental activity. Paul is not saying here, just start thinking about heavenly realities. This word implies more than just setting our minds on something, it implies orienting ourselves it implies focusing on. It implies what, it, what is it that is driving us, that is, that is our goal. See, when Paul says this, he's not, he's not giving some sort of super spiritual command to stop thinking about everything except Jesus, as if we're never supposed to give any thoughts to our jobs or our families or our houses or our lives or our fun. Or our... That's not what he's asking here. What he is asking is that none of those things orient our lives, that none of those things drive our lives, that none of those things define, determine, motivate our lives. See, in verses 1 and 2, with this command and this warning, Paul is telling us to set our minds on things that are above, 
that the things that are above may reorient what drives us and motivate us, that the things that we are looking for, striving for, hoping for, working for are things that are above, not the things that are here on earth. One author that I read recently described an experience he had playing with a little dog. And he said that he had a tennis ball and he would throw this tennis ball and the little dog would go and retrieve the tennis ball. And over and over again, all afternoon, over and over the tennis ball, he'd throw the tennis ball, the dog would go get it back and forth. And he said he began to realize the depth of this dog's obsession for the tennis ball when the dog took the tennis ball with it to eat at his food bowl and left the tennis ball back to his food bowl while he ate. And then he took the ball to sleep with him and left it in his bed as he slept. And if any moment came when this tennis ball was not next to the little dog, the little dog would be frantic running after this tennis ball. This author concludes, he says, I had no other conclusion to draw than that if this dog dies and an autopsy is run on this dog, they will discover not a brain but a tennis ball in its head. The question that Paul is asking here is if an autopsy could reveal our deepest desire, our deepest motivation, what would your autopsy reveal? What would my autopsy reveal? If an autopsy could show us our hearts and our deepest orientation and driving motivations, would an autopsy reveal a deep longing for the heavenly realities of life in Christ that Christ would direct our thoughts and guide our lives and guide our actions, would that be what an autopsy would reveal? Or would an autopsy reveal a host of other desires that are hidden beneath our desire to appear like well-meaning people, but our fun, our admiration, our acceptance, our praise, our wealth, our approval, our our success, would they be what show up in our autopsy? The question is what consumes us? David Platt, a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, put the challenge to us this way. He said, so many professing Christians are caught in the middle. We think we're supposed to try hard to follow Christ, but deep down inside, the pleasures, the pursuits, and the possessions of this world still seem more enticing than Christ. Consequently, the lives of many professing Christians are oftentimes hard to distinguish from the lives of well-meaning non-Christians. But this is not the way it's supposed to be. When we truly come to Christ, our thirst is quenched by the fountain of life. Our hunger is filled with the bread from heaven. We discover that Jesus is the supreme source of satisfaction, and we want nothing apart from Him. That is the difference that Christ makes in our lives. Now, you might be sitting there like I might be sitting here thinking, yes, I've heard this before. I know Stop thinking about wealth and earthly success and think more of Christ. Got it. But but the question this passage is asking goes deeper than that and applies it in ways that, that dig deeper into our hearts. See, the idea of setting our minds on the earth is something that we may be able to answer and say, well, yes, I desire Jesus. I, I'm not wrapped up and consumed by the things of the earth. But Paul gives us tests in verses 5 through 9 of what it will look like if we have set our minds on things of the earth. See, in verse 5, Paul tells us to put to death what is earthly in us. In other words, these are the signs of what will be true of us if we are setting our minds on things of the earth. 
But what is earthly turns out to be a very practical list of sins that none of us can escape from. The list in verses 6 through 9 includes sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires. This is a comprehensive list of any possible sexual sin apart from godly sexuality in marriage. It includes the mental sins of lust or looking at pornography. Perhaps we think we're okay. It continues to covetousness, the longing for something you don't have. It continues on to idolatry, desires driven by something other than who God is and what he has given us. Paul continues with anger, wrath, malice, slandering another person, obscene talk, lying. There's not one of us that can escape this list. Of course, most of us would admit that we can't escape this list, and we would begin to describe why we can't escape this list. Well, yes, of course I was angry. Of course I have been angry. But if you only knew what my coworker said or my boss asked me to do or what my exasperating child did or what my parents said, and we begin to lay out the reasons for why we responded in anger. Or, yes, of course I wanted something, something that I don't have, but isn't it a very normal thing to want some convenience that I don't have? I remember when I was informed uh, by a student a couple of years ago that the cell phone that I have is called a dumb phone. Now, here I am. I teach youth. I'm a youth pastor. I'm supposed to be all up on technology, and I have a dumb phone. And so I immediately started thinking, well, imagine I could just get a smartphone, and, and then I could do things like, you know, be cool and uh, take a picture on my phone and follow my sports on my phone and all... And before I know it, covetousness sets in as the things that I don't have seem like small conveniences that are easy to long for. It's so easy for us to justify my covetousness for that phone, that house, that car, that garage door, uh, or anything else. (laughs) See, we can even start to compare who's got the worst covetousness. Um, But if we look at this passage, see, the core question The core question that Paul has for us is this. Do the circumstances of this life, along with the desires for the things that we don't have, determine and guide how we respond? Are our actions driven by and determined by the circumstances on earth and the things on earth that we desire? If the answer is yes, if our responses are determined by those desires— and we know what they look like with covetousness and idolatry and anger and slandering, if those are responses, then we have set our minds on things on the earth. But if, on the contrary, in the face of the frustrating boss, the exasperating child, the parent who doesn't understand all of the things that we justify, if in the face of those things we are able to look past those things to the reality of who we are in Christ, if we are able to say, I have been raised with Christ, I am awaiting glory with Christ, I am a co-heir with Christ, then who cares what cell phone that I have? Who cares how my parent responded, my co-worker responded? Who cares what they have and that I don't see? None of those things impact who we are in Christ. If we have been raised with Christ, what difference does it make if someone responds with a curt word? If we are awaiting glory and glorified bodies with Christ Jesus, what difference does it make what things we have on this earth or don't have? See, if we set our minds on things that are above and the reality of who we are in Christ, 
if those become the defining and determining and driving responses and desires in our lives, then that bears the fruit in how we act. At the end of the day, what Paul is saying is that we should be who we really are. We should live like who we really are. See, if you have entrusted yourself to Christ, if you have thrown yourself on Christ as your Savior, as your hope, then that is the thing that ought to drive you. He is your hope. He is your Savior. So act like it. It is amazing to me how easily it comes to us to respond in anger or slander or in all of the different sinful responses we have. Pastor Tim Keller has so wisely said, when we respond in anger, the problem at the root is that something else is functioning as our hope, as our Savior. When I get angry, it is because something other than Christ right now is what I'm hoping for and someone is getting in the way of that. When I respond by slandering someone or talking badly about someone, at root is a desire that I have that is functioning as my hope, as the thing that I'm longing for, and I'm responding accordingly. But if we have thrown ourselves on Christ, if we have believed that Christ is our only hope, that Christ is our Savior, then you are raised with Christ. These heavenly realities are true for you. They are your hope. That is who you are. You are united to Christ as co-heirs with Him. So who cares what that advertisement says you need? Who cares about how that person, relative, friend treats you? Who cares what circumstance might awake desires in you? You have put off your old self. And you are being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of your Creator. That's who you are. So Paul is saying, just be who you really are. You are raised with Christ, now live like it. I can imagine the very unlikely scenario, perhaps, at a restaurant, a young boy is working as the busboy, taking the dishes from tables, wiping up the tables and delivering them to the dishwasher. But imagine that one day, as this busboy is fulfilling his duties, man comes to him who has purchased the restaurant and says, young man, I would like to make you the manager of this restaurant. And starting tomorrow when you come in, you are no longer the busboy. You are now the manager. You are now in charge of running this restaurant. But just imagine that if this young boy comes in the next morning, if he puts on his apron and he goes back to the tables and starts wiping the tables and starts clearing the dishes and start taking them to the dishwasher... And all morning and all day he spends with the dishes. At some point that man who has purchased the restaurant is going to come to him and say, Look, I made you the manager. You're not the busboy anymore. This restaurant needs someone leading it. You are the one responsible. Stop acting as if you were still the busboy. That's what Paul is calling to us. You're not your old man anymore. Don't live like you are. Those old desires aren't who you are in Christ anymore. Don't let them control you. You are raised with Christ. In fact, many translators have uh, taken verse 1 and translated it, since you have been raised with Christ. Since this is who you are, alive in Christ, united to Him, live like it. These are your desires. This is who 
you are. This is such a comfort. This is such a wonderful message to us. Because we know that we face the allure of desires in this life. But in the face of these earthly desires, desires for things, recognition, accomplishment here on earth, Scripture is not meeting us with some buck-up message. Scripture is not calling you saying, all right, close your eyes, grit your teeth, try really hard, and don't respond with anger. That's not what this passage is saying. Rather, Scripture is offering a simple, freeing reminder of who you are in Christ. You're a new man. You have been raised with Christ, not because of anything you have done, not because of any resume you have built, but because Christ Jesus died for you, and you, in throwing yourselves upon him, have been raised with him. You are united with him. That's who you already are. Live who you really are. Be the man you already are. The other stuff doesn't matter. Be the new creation that God is renewing you to be. Well, as we come towards a conclusion, I want to return to that little word that started us, that if, that if that drove Paul's argument. All that we've been saying today is predicated on this word if. If you have been raised with Christ, if that is who you are, then he is your life and hope. Set your minds on things above. But this is not just a conditional if. This is also an if of invitation and an if of self-examination. This if is an if of invitation for you if you do not have the hope of resurrection life now and the hope of life in glory with Christ in the future. There's no special formula that's required of you. There's no specific qualifications that you need to develop a resume, no things that need to be accomplished in order for you to qualify for glorious life in eternity. All that's required of you to fulfill this if is to accept the invitation an invitation to acknowledge that our own desires and our own efforts to fulfill them have been the driving passion of our lives. And as we repent that we have been aiming at our desires and our passions and acknowledge that to go after our own desires is a rebellion, an act of rebellion against the God who created us, as we repent of those efforts and instead entrust our lives to Christ, who died to take all the punishment our rebellion deserves, and whom God raised to new life that we might have new life with him, then this if is an invitation for you to accept that and to become one with Christ, of whom it can be said you have been raised with Christ. Christ is your life, and you will appear with Christ in glory. Secondly, this if is a word of self-examination for those of us who already claim life in Christ. It is a call to examine our desires and our actions. If you and I have been raised with Christ, does this fact we are claiming as our own match the way we are living? Does the truth of Christ, is the truth of Christ, determining our desires and our actions? Or are we still looking to the things of earth? Are things on earth still holding sway over our minds and our hearts in a way that is driving how we act? We all be honest, we all have areas where things on earth still hold some grip over our hearts. The scars of our old man are still at play in our lives, and our sinful self-focus is still there at times. But the glory of the gospel 
is that we have been united to Christ, which means that Christ is big enough to handle your failures and my failures. The sins of our old man are not enough to drive away what Christ has done as we throw ourselves upon him. The gospel is big enough to handle our failures. And so when we come to Christ and say, Christ, I know that things on earth have had swell, held sway over my heart. Forgive me. We are united to Christ and Christ's death is still our death. His forgiveness is still our forgiveness. His hope is still our hope. That is the glory of the gospel. But this passage does call us. If we have been raised with Christ, our controlling desire will be to seek the things that are above where Christ is. And so we will eagerly examine our life. We will eagerly look for areas where we are not desiring Christ above all. We will sorrowfully confess the sins that we have found and joyfully run all the harder after our Savior Christ Jesus because He is our life. And we will do it all looking forward to appearing with Him as co-heirs, as sons and daughters of the Father in glory. What a hope we have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, what a assurance, what a blessing to come to your scriptures and to find not a message of condemnation, but a message of hope in Christ Jesus. A message that calls us to hide ourselves in Christ, to entrust ourselves to Christ. And when we entrust ourselves to Christ, His work, His death, His resurrection, His hope, His glory become ours. And all that we have to do is to give thanks and praise to You. That is the only response possible. But I pray, Lord, that as we trust Christ, I pray that He would be our hope, that He would be our greatest desire so that the heavenly truths of who Christ is would determine and drive our desires and our goals and our passions so that our lives will be changed, so that who we are in Christ will be reflected in what we desire and how we act. And we ask this for the glory of our Savior Christ Jesus. Amen.